Again, good morning, everyone. We are in the middle of this series, Biography, and today we are going to look at Joan of Arc. And I have a feeling that a lot of people have heard of Joan of Arc, but I don't know how many people really know her story and the significance of her story. And so we're going to look at that today. And the place I want to turn, I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This is the last section of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, a church that he helped plant and a church that often needs Paul to pay attention to it. This is what he writes. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. You know the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeacus arrived because they supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. Now, Paul continues a, a little bit more in chapter 16. Uh, just basically sending greetings and salutations from other Christian people that they would have known, other Christian leaders that they would have known. Uh, but, but this letter is, is really, really central, and there's a lot of things that Paul addresses in it. But today, I wanted to look through that lens and to think about the character of Joan of Arc, the character of Joan of Arc. This is what Mark Twain said about her. He said, she is easily and by far the most extraordinary person the human race has ever produced. The high words of Mark Twain. The most extraordinary person that the human race has ever produced. Wow. Just let that sink in for a moment. Think about this. This is a peasant teenager from the 15th century. Women didn't lead at the time, certainly not peasant teenage girls. And yet we know her name to this day, and we tell her story to this day. In her own words, she tells how it all happened. She said, I was 13, and I heard a voice from God for my help and guidance. And the first time I heard this voice, I was very much frightened. It was midday, and I was in my father's garden. I had not fasted the day before. I heard this voice to my right towards the church, and rarely do I hear it without it being accompanied also by a light. The voice God told her to go forth and to force the English out of France and then take the firstborn son of Charles VI to Rheims where he would, be, he would have his coronation as king. However, driving out the English seemed to be a real task for the French. It was said at the time that you could have a thousand French military, but they would be beaten by just 200 of the English. They were the underdogs. They were always the underdogs. Yet Joan persisted. She persisted because she believed that if God had called them to do this thing, then nothing could stop them. But the others 
they didn't believe in her visions. They, they weren't sure if she was who she said she was and if God said what she said God said. And so the religious leaders put Joan to the test. He said, Joan, if you can drive the English out of Orleans, then we'll let you take over and do this thing that you feel called to do. And what the French army was not able to do for months and months, Joan was able to do with her soldiers in five days. The English were driven out. All the while with Joan, a teenage girl, as their rallying point as their leader. Her story is absolutely too fascinating for me to give it ample time here to fully summarize it. So I'll share with you one of my favorite quotes that she said. She's on a dangerous journey, and those in her party are always in danger of being attacked by the English. However, her faith in God was unwavering. She still had courage. She says to those who are with her, she says, I do not fear the soldiers, for my road is made open to me. And if the soldiers come, I have God, my Lord. He will know how to make the route clear. It was for this that I was born. And that quote has been summarized throughout history in kind of what I would call a a tweetable moment, a tweetable phrase Joan said, I'm not afraid. I was born to do this. This is an essential truth. If God has born you to do something, it must be done. If God has called you to do something or to, to go make a difference in the world, then it has to be done. Nothing can stop you. If it is of God, then it will happen. And Joan believed this. Her faith was sure of this. Now an 18-year-old French peasant girl is leading the French army during the Hundred Years' War. Again, this is 1430. This is not 2021. It's 1430. If we let that soak in for a moment, it is just impossible to quantify with words. Now God has not given us all visions, and I know we're often suspicious of that, So I don't want us to focus so much on that with Joan of Arc and with her story. Let's look to her unwavering faith and her inspiring courage. She had faith that gives us courage. And if we could learn that, then we'd be focusing on the right thing. I want you to tap into her virtues, not her sanity. Because much has been written about her sanity. Movies have been made making fun of her sanity. Guess what? In this room, we're Christians. And if you're a Christian, then you believe that our battles are not against flesh and blood. You believe our real battles are against spiritual authorities and powers. Which, if you think about it, makes you a little crazy. But a good kind of crazy. Because you know what the battle really is. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and has defeated death once and for all. So yeah, I'm a little nuts because I believe it's true and I believe it makes an eternal difference. I believe that God has given us a hope and a future beyond death and I believe that there's more going on in the world than I can see or I can touch. And my calling 
is to conquer hate with divine love. That the only way to really conquer your enemy is to have them be your friend. And if that's a little nutty, sign me up. So let's not focus on the visions, but instead on her godly virtues that she lived out. And for that, I want to turn to Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. This is a church in modern-day Greece. And we know quite a bit about the city of Corinth and the church there. So I want to give you just a little bit of history. There were Jewish Christians who were there. These are Jewish people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so now they are a part of a church. They are followers of Jesus. But most of the church people there were Gentiles, Gentile converts who knew very little about the Jewish faith. They knew very little about the God of the Bible. They didn't have experience with stories about Abraham and Moses. Uh, when, when people talked about a Messiah, they might not even know what that really is, but they have come to follow Jesus because of his resurrection. And this church often had to be corrected. There were problems in the church of Corinth. There was divisions. There were divisions in the church of Corinth about theology. They didn't all believe the same things about God. There were people who were suing each other within the body of Christ. They had open lawsuits against each other. There was a lot of greed in this church. There were some facets of idol worship. There was evidence of racism. And one of the biggest things that was attacking this church was the class divisions within the church. The rich were often excluding the poor. In fact, Paul spends a lot of time on this in this book talking about the Lord's Supper. There were rich people who were celebrating the Lord's Supper in their home, and they wouldn't invite people who were of a lower class or people who didn't have money, people that weren't important. Paul's like, that's completely unacceptable. That cannot happen in the church of God, where the rich use their power and use their money to exclude others. So Paul wants that to be corrected as well. In fact, the city treasurer of Corinth, somebody who would have been fabulously wealthy, he became a follower of Christ and was even a part of that church. So he might have been one of those people that Paul was addressing. So Paul addresses all of these issues and he says this, if the people in church are going to act like selfish jerks, then the church will fail to be the body of Christ and it will fail to have power. The power of the church is the power of God, and so we have to do God's things God's way. And if we're going to act like the world, then that's exactly what we'll become. We'll become selfish like the rest of the world, a neutered social club. A church that becomes like a neutered social club is the worst kind of church because it's exactly like the world. Lots of religious stuff, no Jesus. They do lots of religious stuff, have lots of opinions, but they have none of the love of God. It's the worst thing a church can become. And so Paul wants to make sure that the church of Corinth does not act this way. And then in chapter 16, Paul closes out this letter with the reading that we had today. And I think in that reading, what you'll find is there's five commands or five exhortations that Paul wants Christians to follow. The first one is that we need to be on guard. 
We need to know what's going on. We need to know what's trying to attack us. Number two, we need to stand firm in the faith. Number three, we need to be courageous, literally act like men. Uh, that Greek word andro has to do with man. You know there's a lot of drugs named after andro. To act like men or be courageous. Number four, to be strong. And then number five, and to do everything in love. And when you look at this passage, I think Joan, she embodied this as well as anybody in history. And perhaps that's why Mark Twain said she was the most extraordinary person ever produced by humanity. Joan was on guard and firm in her faith. She was filled with courage and strength that flowed from her love of God and for her people. Besides, this is what General George Patton said. He said that courage is fear that has said its prayers. Now, we don't know for sure that he said this, but he should have said it because it's true. See, courage isn't a lack of fear. Courage isn't denying that there's things we should be afraid of. No, no, no. Courage is fear that said its prayers. Courage is fear that knows there is something bigger and stronger behind you. Courage is fear that has given it to God and believes that God is in control and that believes God can handle it. Yeah, you're, you're going to face things in your life that bring you some fear. You're going to find courage when you say your prayers and you give those things to God. And then in chapter 16 and then verse 15, Paul starts to recognize some of the leaders. And I want to point this out just so you, you understand how the church even worked. Paul says, you know that the household of Stephanus, they were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. Now, Stephanus and his family, they're hosting the church in their home. In fact, that's what the first churches were. For hundreds of years, they didn't have church buildings. They had generous people who hosted people in their home and hosted people at their table. To all our dads, to all our moms, to all our children at Messiah, it is the household together that served God's people. They looked at their families and they said, we're all called to be missionaries of Jesus. We're all called to give the gospel of Jesus Christ to our friends and to the people around us, to serve each other. Parents, when you think about your kids, are you just trying to keep them out of trouble or are you equipping them to be leaders now? I hope you are. Because kids don't just need to watch church. They don't just need to sit and be quiet. They need to be challenged to become followers of Jesus and doers of ministry, serving in ministry. In this household, Stephanus' household, they understood this. And so they would host the church and their family. They would generous with the church around them. Now, children, you can learn love and service in your home. You can also learn from your parents to be tight-fisted and selfish. A lot of people are that way. So my challenge to you parents is, what are you teaching your kids about love and service? He mentions another household. This is in verse 19. It's the household of Aquila and Priscilla. And he says that they are greeting you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at 
their house. And Priscilla and Quilla, they're important. This is a husband and wife team. A husband and wife team who keep starting house churches wherever they had. They, they had the same courageous faith that Joan of Arc had. Aquila and Priscilla would open up their home and they hosted churches. And according to the New Testament, they did this in three different cities. This was a dynamic ministry couple. They lived in Corinth, later on Ephesus and Rome. And in all three places, the church met in their house. And furthermore, it was at their house that Paul would often stay, especially during his first visit of Corinth. They hosted Paul, the disciple of Jesus. He lived there with them for a year and a half. That's how much they loved the church. And I think there may be no greater tool for ministry than the Christian home. Because it's the Christian home that is the testing ground of the power of love and acceptance. When we can use the power of love and acceptance in our home, it serves as a living demonstration of God's love for those seeking to be part of God's family. And I'll point this out because I think it's important. Uh, Joan of Arc, here we have a very significant woman who's doing amazing things in a time where it wasn't expected. And the same with Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team. It, it never mentions in church history just the husband here. Always mentions the faithfulness of his wife. I, I know a lot of times people come to church and the only thing you ever seem to hear about is all the dudes in the Bible. That's unfortunate. It's unfortunate because there were Christian female leaders in the early church, faithful servants of God. And many of them are mentioned throughout the New Testament, but a lot of times they don't get talked about. And during this series biography, we're going to highlight a number of women, people like Joan of Arc and Mother Teresa people like Susanna Wesley, who made a huge gospel impact on the world. And so we need to know their stories. And by the way, if you go to most churches in America, who are most of the people in the seats? It's the women. There's more women going to churches. And so we thank you for that, moms. We thank you that you're often the one that's motivating your family to be in church. We thank you that you're the one that is the prayer warrior so often for your families. I love it when men want to be a spiritual leader in their home. But I have experienced often that it's the women who do it. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you want to do that. So what happens when the church forgets the love that it's supposed to be demonstrating? What happens when that happens? The story of Joan of Arc can tell us that too. When she was 19, she was captured by the English. She was accused of witchcraft because they said she listened to the voices in her head. And so they accused her of witchcraft. Her faith didn't fit in their religious box. And so the leaders at the time had created this other kind of faith, and they had no room for Joan. And so their version of religion decided she should be burned at the stake because she didn't fit in their box, which is so outside the message of Jesus that when the experience that somebody has or the way that they pray doesn't fit in the religious box you have, you would kill them? 
This is so outside the message that Jesus has brought into the world. Jesus gave his life on a cross to defeat sin and to defeat death and to forgive our sins. So what they did to her is the opposite of the gospel. This is what happens when the church and the state dance too closely together. This is what happens. The state becomes the church. They tell you what to believe. And the church becomes the state. I think it's why Jesus was largely uninterested in politics altogether. Jesus hardly ever mentions Caesar. Jesus hardly ever talks about King Herod. Jesus has no interest in politics because he thinks the politics of these kingdoms have no bearing on his kingdom because a new kingdom is being ushered in. And so he's largely uninterested with these solutions. He barely comments on it at all. And, and that's why the religious leaders of Jesus' time, they were morally bankrupt. They had let the church become the state and the state become the church. Here's the problem. A church that takes up the sword can't also hold the cross. You can't do it. They're incompatible. Let me say something that's really going to offend you. All politics are a sad substitute for the better and more beautiful world that God wants to usher in. All politics, all your opinions on politics are a sad Sad substitute for what God wants to happen in this world. Sad substitute. And so we as the church, in the midst of governments and everything else going in the world, God has called us to be a better way. And where governments won't be just, we will present grace. Where governments won't do their job, we will bring mercy. Because we believe that there is another kingdom than that's in this world, and it is more important, and it is more holy, and it is good. So Joan was burned at the stake by a church that decided it wanted to be the state and by a state that decided it wanted to be the church. And they burned her at the stake three times to make sure all that was left was ashes. But Why? They didn't want somebody to grab a bone and use it like a relic. They didn't want somebody grabbing some of her hair and using it as a good luck charm. They didn't want anything of Joan to be left for the people to celebrate. And the whole time, she never recanted her faith. In fact, the last word she said was Jesus. And she screamed it. That's what the crowd said. She screamed the name of Jesus. And some of the soldiers were there when they heard that. They realized she was really a saint and they got tears in their eyes because they had done something wrong. And it wasn't until later that the church reversed its course and nullified the order and then eventually named Joan of Arc a saint of the church. You see, the only heretics in the crowd the only heretics were the religious people who thought that the best way to represent God was to hate and murder people who prayed a little more extravagantly than, than they did. So what do you do if you think God's talking to you? What do you do if 
you believe that you've heard the voice of God in your life. Well, I've experienced that. When I made the decision to go to seminary and to train to be a pastor, it was a four-year decision. And I knew that God had called me into this. In fact, I had heard the voice of God. And so I went to St. Louis, moved up from Texas, and went to this school, uh, this beautiful campus. But I didn't feel like I fit in. I felt like a lot of the classes were a little too judgmental and that maybe a lot of these people hadn't been out there in the real world. And, and, and I wasn't ready to be a high and holy person. I was just ready to be a real dude who loved God. And so after that first term, I was driving home 14 hours down to Austin, Texas, and I was just thinking the whole time, God, I don't think this is for me. I don't think I'm the one that they want there. They want a different kind of person. And it was in that drive that I was driving my favorite car, my 1994 Chevy Camaro. This is what it looked like before I totaled it. And I was driving down about an hour north of Austin, and rain started pouring down really hard. And my tires were a little old because I was in grad school, and I didn't have enough money to replace them. And my car hydroplaned. And I went all the way across and hit one median, and all the way back across and hit the other one with the backside of my car. And my car looked like a Twinkie that had been smashed in. It looked like an accordion. And while I was spinning out along the road, I saw a truck coming right through me, the lights just right into me. But there I was on the side of the road. I had to pry myself out of the car, and the truck had pulled over and a couple other cars as well to see if I was alive. They couldn't believe that I was. And they came up to the car, and the trucker said to me, I don't understand. I hit you, but I passed right through you. I didn't even touch you. I don't understand. I hit you, but I passed right through you. When they finally left, I went to a payphone. They used to have things like that to make phone calls. And I, I called my sister and my friends, and they, they came and picked me up. And as I sat there, I asked God, how could you let this happen? What's next? And God said, I've got you. You're mine. Your life is mine. I'm not done with you yet. It was at that moment I knew I had to go back. And years have gone by, and I've been in ministry. And you know, that's the only time I've been in a car accident. Until Tuesday. <laughs> and my car was totaled again. <laughs> Seems like whenever I get in an accident, it's always got to be like a glory of fire or something. I don't understand. It's been 22 years, and I found myself prying myself out of the car again. And I heard God say to me again, not done with you yet. Your life is mine. Now, how do I know I heard the voice of God? I think there's a way you can check this. I think there's a way that Joan of Arc could have checked this. Listen to your conscience. First of all, the Holy Spirit does want to speak to every single one of you. The Holy Spirit wants to direct all of your lives. If you don't think that's happening, then you don't understand the faith. 
The Holy Spirit wants to be in control of you and wants you to submit to God, your life to God. So you listen to your conscience. But you need to test that. So think of it like a triangle. You have your conscience here, but test it against Scripture. Is this consistent with Scripture? Is this what God is teaching in Scripture? Because if it's not consistent with Scripture, then it's not the voice of God. And then thirdly, the other part of the triangle is listen to wise voices. A wise advisor can often speak God's word, God's will into your life. If it's a spiritual matter, you might talk to a pastor. If it's a financial matter, you might talk to a friend who's good with numbers, somebody who's going to speak truth into your life. If it's a personal matter, you might talk to your parents or, or somebody else that you trust who you know is going to tell you the truth. And so what you do, you want to know if you're hearing the voice of God or not, is you want to make sure to listen to your conscience and what you believe God is saying to you, but test that against Scripture and test that against a wise authority. Because if you do that, even when God's not speaking directly to it, you will do it with integrity and faith. The kind of faith-filled courage that Joan of Arc had. You're doing a good thing. See, sometimes God might use extreme methods to get our attention so that a courageous faith like Joan of Arc's comes out. And he does it for a reason. Because the salvation of people by the free grace of God is too important. It's of utmost importance. So maybe I'm a little crazy too, like Joan. I don't know. But I think it's a good kind of crazy. Because it's the kind that believes hate can only be defeated by love. By God's love. So Christians, don't save up love like you're going to run out of it. Spend love on people like you're made of the stuff. Because that's how it works. The more you love, the more love you have, and the more you'll become love. It's how God's designed us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us at this church, that you have blessed our families, that you want to be a blessing in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would always be with us. Be with the women of this church and show them how you would have them lead spiritually, how to have them lead in worship, how to have them lead in prayer. We pray for all of us that we could discern your will for our lives and that we'd be willing to follow you. Faithful courage like Joan. Lord, be with our community groups. Right? We're getting to the end of the year, the end of the school year, and a lot of them are coming to a close. We ask that you would help them close well, that they would end well. Because, Lord, even though a group comes to an end, the prayers we have for each other and the love we have for each other does not. For all the teachers at our school, as well as the other schools in the area, for all the kids who call Messiah home, Help them in this, this last week well, giving praise for you for all that you've done in our lives. Lord, for all the other prayers that we have as we get ready for the summer, we now pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, may the one who blesses you make you into a blessing so that you can give away divine love like you're made of the stuff. Amen. Amen. We love you, Messiah. Let's get to your feet. Let's praise our God one last time, and let's take this worship out there into the world because they need to hear it. God bless.